Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. On a cool January morning in 1981, a knock on an apartment door began what would become one of the bloodiest crime sprees in Arkansas history. In the coming days, the bodies of newlyweds Larry and Joanna Price, businessman Holly Gentry, and police detective Ray Tate were discovered. They had been executed in cold blood and discarded like so much trash. What kind of person murders four people in cold blood? Did the right one go to prison? The book that we're featuring this evening is Cold-Blooded, a chilling true tale of terror, rape, and murder in the Arkansas River Bottoms. With my special guest, author Anita Paddock. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for this interview. Anita Paddock. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here talking to you. Thank you so much. This is uh, an incredible tale. Um, Let's just start with where this Arkansas River Bottoms that we're speaking, we refer to in the title, where this uh, area is, and then introduce Joanna Price. Okay. Well, the area is in uh, northwest Arkansas. Uh, along the Arkansas River, uh, and there's a, <clears throat> a, a uh, area called just a little area called Kibler, the Kibler Bottoms, and a whole lot of people live there, and the land had been theirs for generations and generations, and uh, <clears throat> but the Kibler Bottoms w- would be uh, not a good place you wanted to go to at night time. <clears throat> Okay, so Joanna Price was this real cute little girl from Flat Rock, Arkansas, and she married uh, a boy that she met in high school that was where she attended in Lamar, Arkansas, and Lamar's not very much bigger than Flat Rock, Arkansas, but Joanna had always wanted to be a nurse, and so she and her husband married right after high school, and they moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where there's a community college there with a nursing program. 
So she started that nursing program there. And her husband got a job at Baldor Electric. And they just were real happy together. And they lived in a real nice little apartment that uh, was close to the campus so she could walk. And uh, <clears throat> and it was owned by this fellow named Holly Gentry. He was a really nice guy. And they just hit it off as friends. And so Larry Price and Joanna managed these apartments. And uh, Holly Gentry's father owned this really nice big uh, oh, it was a big mall in in uh, western uh, western Fort Smith called Phoenix mm-hmm. Village, and uh, <clears throat> and so during the during the uh, Christmas vacations, they asked Holly if she'd like. I mean, they asked uh, Joanna if she would like to work part time while she's out of school and be like a secretary there farm at Phoenix Village, and she said yes, she would. So on this mor- Monday morning, the door, they, she heard a knock on the door, and she answered the door, and it was this guy standing outside, and he said he wanted to talk, look about this car that was being for sale. And the car belonged to Holly Gentry, but Larry was selling it for him, his friend. So she said, Joanna said, well, just wait here, and I'll get my husband. He's still, a, he's still asleep. So she got her husband, and they came out, and and they took a test drive with his car. And when she was getting ready to leave to go to work, they got back. And uh, her husband said, well, this is Mr. Simmons, and he wants to buy the car. And And so she said, well, great. So it was time for her to leave for work, and and Larry walked her out to his out to her car like he usually did. It was real; he was a real sweet, good, kind husband, and walked her out. <clears throat> and so she left to go to work at Phoenix Village. And before she left, she and Larry decided that they would have lunch together and go eat lunch at a Mexican restaurant. And he'd pick her up at noon. At Phoenix Village, so she went on. She went on to work, and when it came time for lunch, she went out and waited for Larry, and he didn't come, and he didn't come, and that was really unlike him. And so <clears throat> she uh, she w- she went back in, and she told her the people she worked for that her husband hadn't. You know, wasn't there to pick her up, and that was strange. And and so uh, uh, Holly Gentry said, "Well, why don't you call uh, Larry's work at Baldor? That was a, an electric right. company, a big electric company, and see if he's at work." And so she did. And the lady who answered the phone there, the secretary, said, "No, but he called in, said he was wouldn't be there today." Well, that really scared her. So then she called his parents, and she called her parents to see if perhaps Larry uh, had gone down there for some reason. And no, they hadn't heard from him. So Holly Gentry insisted that they go and make a, a report about Larry being gone, also gone with the, and this car was gone also. 
the car that was in for sale. So they went to the police station and they they told they gave all the particulars and they talked to these two police officers. One was named Poncho and the other one was named Ray Tate. And they took all the particulars and said, "Why don't you all go on? You and Holly go on back to the to the apartment, and we will follow, we will follow you, and come back and get all the information about the car that has been no longer around." <clears throat> so she, they did. They went back to the apartment, and. She was, of course, real concerned about her husband, where was he, and Holly Gentry was concerned about his friend and where was his car, and uh, they got into the to the apartment, and there they were met by this Simmons guy who had come to look at the car to begin with, mm-hmm. and he... he uh, he t- he took uh, <clears throat> Ray Tate's gun and he took his uh, handcuffs and he handcuffed him. And Joanna and Holly had already been tied up with some real heavy twine that he found in their house. And so there, there was the guy who looked at the car that morning and whose name was Mr. Simmons. And then there was Holly Gentry, and and there was Joanna, and then there was Ray Tate, and the fellow named Poncho, Poncho Davis, he had to go to a meeting, and so he he couldn't go with Ray Tate, but he was going to come later. Mm-hmm. And so they were here; they were in this apartment. It was on January the fifth, nineteen eighty. One, it was real, it was real, real cold, and uh, Joanna was crying. She didn't know where her husband was, and and uh, Holly Gentry was. He was a real, uh, he was a real, real Christian fella, and was always, always talking about Jesus and wanting people to get right with the Lord, and so. Holly was mm-hmm. given this same spiel to this Mr. Simmons, and and Ray Tate was just thinking that any minute now, Poncho's going to be there. And uh, Poncho got held up at his meeting, or he would have been there. Mm-hmm. All right, so here we have we have a man, we have a, a husband, Larry Price, missing, and the car that he was selling is also missing and then we have Joanna who is crying and and hysterical because she doesn't know where her husband is and she's scared to death and then we have Holly Gentry and we have Ray Tate and Ray Tate was the kind of policeman who always said he could talk his way out of anything and that was his that was his persona that he could he could always talk his he could talk his way out of any kind of trouble, and he told his fellow police officers that. And uh, so, anyway, Ray Tate and and Holly Gentry 
uh, and little Joanna. When I say little Joanna, Joanna was about five feet tall and weighed probably about 95 pounds. She was a real tiny little girl. Anyway, uh, Mr. Simmons decided that he would take all three of them and put them in Ray Tate's vehicle, his police car, and they would all leave. And uh, so they headed down. They had he, Mr. Simmons, his name was Thomas Simmons, and they called him Tommy or Tom. And his he had Joanna in the front seat with him, and he had uh, Tate and Holly Gentry lie down on top of each other in the back floorboard, and. Uh, Ray Tate thought he would be able to get the the ropes untied around Holly Gentry's uh, arms and legs, and then he could get them untied around his, but they, that didn't happen. Anyway, they ended up down in the Kibler Bottoms, and so Simmons took them down there in the police car, and he shot them. He shot all three of them and raped Joanna. And then they were, he he put their bodies down in this kind of like a little trash heap that was on the, the, a farm belonging to Mr. McClure. And Mr. McClure the next day is who found the bodies of them. Uh, so they had to leave the bodies there at at the crime scene until the state police was able to send a uh, team there to take the bodies out and do all the that they have to do. I'd like to read you a little bit about that crime scene and while people are yes. waiting. Okay. <clears throat> yes. Night had. Night had fallen by the time the crime scene was roped off with yellow tape. A cold wind whined across the Arkansas River, which was just south of the murder scene. Men huddled in groups of four or five, quietly talking, shaking their heads, and wondering most of all who and why. The Arkansas State Medical Examiner's Office in Little Rock had already been called and nothing could be done until they arrived. Nothing but wait. The minutes dragged by into three hours, the time it took for the medical examiners to travel to the scene. The Kibler Fire Department drove a fire truck over to shine light on the murder scene, and later the Sebastian County Red Cross brought over a generator to supplement the power. A farmer delivered an empty barrel and a load of firewood in the back of his pickup so a fire could be built to warm those who waited. The news media was there also. Newspaper and television reporters jockeyed for positions while the lawmen tried their best to keep them at bay. Some of the locals who had farmed in this community for generations arrived with the feeling that their farmland was somehow desecrated. What has happened in our peaceful little community, folks ask. We all look out for each other, go to church, support our schools, 
try try to raise our kids right. And now this. It was a scene few of them would ever forget as they stood in their insulated overalls and camouflage hunting coats. The flames in the barrel cast eerie shadows on their faces while they hunkered over the fire, holding their hands palm down, stamping their feet to get circulation moving, cursing the person or persons who would try to conceal bloody bodies inside a tractor tire. When the when the bodies were removed, everybody expected there to be four bodies because right. they knew that Larry was missing. But there were only three bodies. It was Joanna and Holly Gentry and Ray Tate. And so then that left one other person. And where was he? Where was he? Uh, and so they had a manhunt for the for for Larry and finally the next day or two uh they got a they got a a message from somebody who had been on a a drunken toot out in uh and out close to the river bottom in this Clear Creek Park where people could go duck hunting. There was a uh you could set your your uh boat out and and come in and out, and that was a a good place for duck hunting. But anyway, they they got this tip of where this body was, and that was where Larry was. And so then they figured out that Larry, that this Simmons guy, had stolen the car and taken Larry out to this Clear Creek Park, and he had shot him. And... uh the strange thing, this guy Simmons, he he went. Uh, he had stolen a check out of a checkbook at right. the apartment, and he he wrote himself a check for three hundred dollars, signed it, forged the name by Larry Price, and stopped on his way from killing Larry Price. He stopped at a bank and deposited this check, and it was three hundred dollars. And then he <laughs> he asked for fifty dollars in in cash, and so then he he left. <laughs> well, the, he took he was doing all sorts of back and forth, back and forth. Uh, taking a taxi cab here, taking a taxi there, putting this car here, putting his own personal car there, and uh, he was just all over the place. <clears throat> I, uh, I doubt that he could have done any of this by himself, but he w- he was arrested because he was wh- when. <clears throat> The next day, I'm getting ahead of myself. The next day after these murders and, and, and even before Larry Price was even found, <clears throat> they knew that all these people had been killed and that Larry Price was being looked, they were looking for him. And right. the Simmons guy, he very foolishly went back to the bank and said that he had deposited a check the day before. 
and he found out that it wasn't any good, and he wanted to get that check back. And so the lady who was waiting on him uh, said, "Just a minute, I'll have to, I'll have to check on that." And by chance, her boss at this branch bank was the, was the wife of the chief of police, the assistant chief of police. And so she, of course, had been hearing about everything from her husband. And so right. she, you know, she got the license number of this car, and and she called her husband, and and he said, "Honey, you may have solved a, a car, a, a crime of the century here." And so that's how they found this Thomas Simmons. He had a job, and they had his the license number and knew where he worked. And so they they went to his place of employment and picked him up and took him to uh, the jail and and uh, arrested him. <clears throat> Anita, let's stop for a second for these messages. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now you talk about uh-huh. his arrest. Now you talk about his arrest. They they get his license plate number, they track him down, they get him at work. But now in your book you recount the reasoning behind all of this and his criminal background, the things that he was on parole. So now we go back okay. to now we go back to Thomas and we talk about him being paroled and his sister Leona Powell. Tell us about the, the crime that he was on parole for, and then tell us about the details and the idea that his original plan was, he says later, that was his original okay. plan for this car. Well, his original plan, I'll, I'll, I'll start, he came from a real dysfunctional family, and he had been arrested many times since he was in you know, for stealing a car when he was 17 years old. And his crimes just got worse and worse. And he was, he had, uh, he had kidnapped this young man who worked at a filling station in Little Rock. And he made this man that he was working for him and filling up the tank. He had that guy get in the back seat of his car and lie on the floorboard and off they went and he he ended up by he thought he killed this fellow out in the country outside of Little Rock and he he tried to kill him he tried first of all he tried to, to tried to stab him to death and that boy didn't die then he tried to slit his throat and that boy didn't die so finally, he just he just buried him under some leaves and thought that he had left the boy, uh, that he was dead or going to die. 
Well, the boy, he was like 18, and he was strong and healthy, and he he was able to drag himself to a nearby farmhouse, and they called the police and, and the hospital. And so this Simmons guy was identified and was arrested, and he was sent to prison for 45 years for kidnapping and a, and a robbery and kidnapping and attempted murder. But he got out in eight years for good behavior. So he had to, he had to find a place to stay. So he had a sister who lived down in Arkansas in Kibler Bottoms. And so he asked her if he could come and live with her while he was on parole. And she was a unwed mother, had five children. In fact, the youngest child actually belonged to Thomas Simmons, but she had adopted this little girl because Thomas Simmons was such a terrible person. Anyway, she had these these five girls, and she was trying her best to, to give them a good start. And she did. The girls... The girls, the pal girls, all were very capable young women and were some, one girl was already going to school at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. The other girl, other two girls were in going to West Ark Community College. And then there was another, the other girl was very popular in high school. She was very, uh, she was head of the annual staff and put out the newspaper. Anyway, they were a nice family, and they got, and old Simmons came to live with them. And he thought that he, he thought that he could maybe uh, redeem himself from his criminal ways. And, and he had gone to, when he was in Leavenworth Prison, he had gone to, uh, some classes and and did very well in computers classes. So he wanted to. He tried to go. He wanted to go to the community college West Ark in Fort Smith, and he got accepted. As a matter of fact, but he didn't have any money to pay the uh, tuition or buy his books. And so I think that when he when he saw this car for sale. He thought he would steal that car, sell it to somebody he knew from prison days who would buy it, and then he would have the money and he could start his college education. That's that's that was what that was what the rumor sort of was. Uh, <clears throat> but I do know that Simmons hung out at the at West Ark in the Student Union, he hung out there. People remembered seeing him out there, and he had, you know, signed up to take some college courses. He wasn't. He wasn't dumb. He was. Uh, he he. When he was taking these college courses, he was. He read. He took some English classes and literature classes and. And, you know, he was, he knew who, he, you know, he knew who, you know, the Grapes of Wrath, he knew all these 
American authors and and War and Peace and I mean he was he was he was not dumb but he was lived a life of crime and there was no way he was gonna get out of it. No way whatsoever. So when they found Larry Price's body then that that accounted for all the the four people and those those were all sent down to the uh, for autopsies down in Little Rock. And there there was a this was a really sad thing. Little Joanna's face while she was buried in that tire pit, there were some dogs down in there who were had had puppies and her little face was eaten off by those dogs. Let's talk about Leanna Powell, uh, Thomas's uh, sister. But she has a okay. boyfriend. She has a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, she has a boyfriend, and and the Squeeb was from this big, large family, the Bryant family, in in Kibler, and he didn't do much but just hunt and fish and. And he was a real little guy, and he weighed about a hundred and twenty pounds, and he was about five seven or so. And and uh, but he and Leona were girlfriend and boyfriend. And when Thomas Powell moved into Leona's house, well, they did some drinking together, and so everybody in the community. The Kibler community, when this happened, they all thought that Squibb was behind it because he knew that they were friends. And and uh, but Squibb was at a he was in Mississippi, Mississippi on a on a duck hunting thing with four or five men from around there, and so Squibb could not have done it unless those four or five men just made it, you know been an alibi for him. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> it was What about the, the what about the gun? What about the what was discovered oh, by the okay. police in terms of his connection to the gun? Oh, okay. There was a gun at the bottom of the bodies that were found in uh in that dit or that little pit thing. There was a bo- a gun in there and it was the same kind, it was the same gun that had been used to kill the people and that gun was traced back to squib squeeb and squeeb had he two years earlier he had gone and and to the police department and declared that that gun had been stolen that was two years before but, uh, you know, someone can say a gun has been stolen and then not, and then it really hadn't been. Sure. Uh, and so one, one of, uh, Mrs. Powell's, the sister's daughters said that, that Squeeb had given her mother a gun because there were some prowlers around there. And so then her mother said, no, 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 that didn't happen. Squeeb said, you know, he said, no, he'd never given her a gun. But, you know, certainly the gun was, 
available for Thomas Simmons to have used. Uh, they found all sorts of things in, <clears throat> oh, this is one interesting thing. You know, Thomas Simmons took everybody out to Kibler Bottoms and, and Tate's police car. And mm-hmm. he left, he left the police car at this filling station, a truck stop. And so, uh, a Van Buren policeman, uh, was patrolling the area and he saw this, he saw Tate's police car. Of course, there was all sorts of bulletins out to be looking for all these various cars. And so they looked under the, they looked under the chassis, chassis of the car and saw all this dirt and saw all this, these kind of weeds and mud and sand. They knew they knew this had come from the bottoms, but they didn't know if it was the bottoms on the Van Buren, the Kibler side of the river, or on the Oklahoma side of the river. The Arkansas River divided Arkansas from Oklahoma right there at that particular area. So they were having they were looking all over the place. They had police cars patrolling, they had uh, airplanes uh, patrolling, seeing if they could see anything. Uh, so it was it was quite a manhunt and quite a quite a quite a thing to have happened in in Van Buren. However, as it turned out, it was the third crime that had happened in a nine month period of time in Van Buren. And I had well, I had written about the other two crimes, and I, it wasn't I, I didn't realize that there had been that many crimes in one time. But when I started working on it, I realized that hey, this all happened in a nine month period of time in sleepy little Van Buren, Arkansas. Population then was about eight thousand, maybe. Right. Uh, so let's let's get back to Poncho Davis and oh. now he's been arrested. Now this Thomas has been arrested. Uh, okay. They certainly have a, a lot of circumstantial evidence. They also have witnesses that place him looking at the vehicle prior to this the, to the abduction of Larry Price in the first place. So they have various right. witnesses. They even had a couple witnesses that identified him in the lineup. So they have some strong circumstantial evidence. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the prosecution and uh, their idea about what happened, despite you mentioning that it looked like to anybody that looked at, at this and anybody had heard about this crime that there certainly was the possibility that uh, Thomas Simmons had a partner. Well, yes. Uh, because I don't know how one man could corral uh, a policeman, Ray Tate, uh, and then Holly Gentry. They were both in fine physical shape. Let's see, mm-hmm. Holly Gentry was 28. His the Tate fellow, I think, was 32. And uh, and then this little this little Joanna. I mean, anybody could you know, toss her around. She was so little. Here is one kind of a little anecdote about Joanna. 
Joanna was scared to death to be in that apartment by herself. She was always scared. And her friends who were in nursing school with her, they would study together, and she would always ask the friends to walk home with her and go into the apartment with her. And while she looked in the closet and looked under the bed... And so this little girl, she had, she had some kind of premonition that something was bad going to happen to her. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I, I, you can imagine how scared she was. Uh, her, she didn't know where her husband was. Um, the police, the police found in in the in the police car in Tate's police car they found some matchbooks uh and they found some um, um cigarette packages it was vantage cigarettes i don't even remember vantage any but this is you know back in 1981 and then some matchbooks that said good value on the matchbook covers. And those okay. were found in Thomas's, uh, Thomas Simmons' trunk of his little car. He had this little orange, uh, little orange little Toyota. And, uh, <clears throat> those, that was found in there. Uh, those matchbooks and and uh, the cigarettes. Uh, they never found any bloody clothes uh, to tie Thomas Simmons in. But if his if his sister if his sister had washed his clothes as she normally did, because he worked at a sand and gravel company and got you know. Every day when he came home, he was covered with you know sand and stuff, and so and she always did that, uh, or so she said. She always did that. She might have been lying for him. Uh, I don't. She might have been scared of him. Uh, I don't you might know. Have made a good point though. You might have made a good point though, in that he seemed to have the technique, because as you read in the book. Uh, Gentry was a very fit guy, and I and cryptically he had a conversation with his other physically fit brother, and they were talking about yeah. the Iran Contra hostage affair, and they talked specifically about that they would rather, and they knew that it would be better to die where you were taken hostage rather than to go with the kidnapper, and they had this right. strangely cryptic conversation, and the thing is that the detective Tate was another person that wouldn't have went without a fight, wouldn't have stopped fighting right to the very end to be able to escape. And then you write as well that that Joanna was the last to die. And so you, you, you talk about her personality. So imagine the horror. And as you write in the book, too, he rapes her. And, and that is you write, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit. She is uh, not only, she's raped anally and vaginally. Right. Let's talk about this John Dickerson, because you you zero in on this person as this person that was willing 
to uh, be an accomplice in terms of this stolen car of Larry Price. Tell us what you well, think happened. John John Dickerson was someone I just gave a name to because all the time I was writing, when I was writing this book, I always, always felt like uh, he had an accomplice uh, because he had to, he wanted to get this, he wanted to, he wanted to steal this car and then he had to sell it because he couldn't, he couldn't, he himself couldn't be driving around with his car when he was wanting to go to college and had already signed up and already gotten admitted. And so I just thought, well, there has to be somebody who's helping him along. And uh, there, there was, there was one man who, earlier in the book, he is interviewed by some police because he claims that he, he, he claims that he saw uh, Simmons escort these three people out to get in the car. He said he right. claimed that he was there. Uh, taking care of uh, someone's apartment while they were gone. And he claims that he was walking out there and saw it all. But not much, uh, nobody really believed him all that much because he actually Mm -hmm. was a schizophrenic and had been in and out of mental hospitals. And so uh, they sort of, the prosecuting attorneys, uh, they they claimed that uh, he didn't, you know, that his his memory could not have been that perfect. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't. I don't know about that fella. I do know that just a few months ago, I visited with Holly Gentry's sister. And I, I had gotten all of the gentry information from the brother Mark, who who told me everything that I knew about the gentrys. Anyway, this his sister, his little sister, had she wanted to meet me. They she and her husband live up in Missouri, and so she told me that she'd like to meet me. And so I met her. Uh, well, it's been a month ago, I guess. I met her at a bookstore, and she told me that after all this happened, that the Van Buren police had found up in a vacant house up on Highway 59, they had found Holly Gentry's wedding ring and Holly Gentry's wallet and Tate's wow. wallet up in this house up in this house that was for sale and and was vacant. And so somebody connected with Simmons was in that house. And Mm. that further makes me think I was correct in thinking that some, excuse me, somebody was staying in that house and, and, uh, you know, helping out Simmons with his various shenanigans that he was doing, killing people left and right. 
Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For these messages. Now you talk about this, and you talk about this, and new information coming out. Like you say, just recently, this this book was published in 2019. Let's talk about this trial. This is a capital case trial uh, in, in Arkansas. Yeah. So let's let's talk about what happens. You have the prosecutor has a story, and of course, the defense has a much simpler, much different story. Well, the defense. Uh, Simmons was, uh, he had a court-appointed attorney, and that was John Settle. Uh, And John Settle, uh, you know, a court-appointed attorney isn't really uh, keen on having to do that. They only get $200 to present their case, and at that time they did. and, and, uh, And so... He doesn't think he can do a very good job. And uh, and then the prosecuting attorney, Rod Field, he, uh, he, he interviewed all these people who had, had seen Simmons and come and look at the car and had seen Simmons at, uh, hanging out around West Ark, had seen Simmons hanging out at the Osco drug store and the, shopping center where he was uh, going here and yonder from with a, from a taxi cab. He interviewed uh he interviewed lots of people and they were <clears throat> he he in the really the ones who were really the most interesting I thought and I had the court I had the court uh try I had the transcript of the trial so I was I was I was <laughs> I had a really good uh, treasure chest of notes to use uh, and so I had all the, the transcript of all the questions that were answered and uh, Simmons did not take the stand uh, this this is an interesting aside from that uh, they filed, of course, all sorts of appeals that are automatically filed. And then Simmons, uh, um, he uh, wrapped himself up in a blanket and and uh, slit his throat and committed suicide. Now, I don't know why in the world you would wrap yourself up in a blanket and I don't see how in the world you could slit your own throat. I think he might have. Um, now, have you heard of the Dixie Mafia? Yes, it's been discussed. Okay. Okay. Well, the Dixie. It. Okay, the Dixie Mafia is just a group of bad folks who originated down in Mississippi, and uh, they. I know that they. 
I know that they killed a judge down there, and and uh, but they're just a bad. They would be like the the mafia, uh, the Dixie Mafia, is the bad folks who in, live in the South and and com- commit crimes and and are they're just bad folks and <clears throat> and now Simmons was in prison so many years, obviously with somebody who was probably I mean it would stand to reason that he might know somebody in the Dixie Mafia. And so it could be that this, whoever he was going to sell the car to was part of the Dixie Mafia. Uh, I don't know, but I could just, you know, toss that out from a thinking. And so it also could be that Simmons took the rap for killing everybody and instead of it really being some Dixie Mafia people. Now, that's another thing to toss out. And he was, he, Simmons was a cellmate of this fella who I wrote about in my second book who had killed these people who he had robbed a jewelry store and he had killed a man who owned a store and his daughter. And right. supposedly that fella killed those people was part of the Dixie Mafia. And so if he was a, if he was a, you know, if he was a uh, cellmate of this Simmons guy who might have, you know, going to, you know, pleaded that he, you know, he took the fall for these other guys, uh, you know, he could have killed him. He could have wrapped him up and slit his throat. I don't know. Well, you write. Uh... <laughs> you write that you have your doubts about whether it was an actual suicide, and then you you talk about a Eugene Perry and that his connection yeah. to the Dixie Mafia. I don't know about right. the ideas that you that you speculate, but there are various reasons for being killed in prison. But I think your idea that it's unlikely a suicide. You write that the why would he wrap himself in a blanket beforehand? So there was some, at least some questions as to that as well. Ironically, if he were to commit suicide this way by slitting his own throat, it's very similar to what he tried to do with the young boy. Unfortunately, didn't kill, right. kill that boy right. by slitting his throat. You talk about the trial itself, capital punishment. Um, the prosecutor did an admirable job. Uh, John Settle, the the defense attorney, basically said that all they could really prove that, that he had forged a check, that that initial check that he yeah. had stolen, that blank check. But you say very much that that was his undoing. And that trial, along with the circumstantial evidence and the witnesses that placed him in various uh, places, um, that he did receive that capital punishment. And then once he, yes. his appeals were exhausted, that's when you say that this slitting of the, roast, slitting of the, the uh, throat suicide occurred. Well, suppose he, he told somebody, Simmons told somebody, that he was going to commit suicide because he didn't want his family to have to go through uh being talked about when his when he was when he's 
when he's when his uh, electrocution date was set. He didn't want them to have to go through all that again, uh, which seems sort of flimsy to me, uh, because when he did commit suicide, that was you know that was that was that brought about some speculate speculation as well. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know you know after. Now I'm from around here, and so I mean I I grew up. I was I was born in Crawford County. My daddy had a store, and all of his customers were farmers in Kibler, and so I know a lot of people around here, and which has sort of made it easy for me to be able to write these books about crimes that have been committed here, because I'll know people whom I can talk to, and they'll tell me things, and so. I uh <clears throat> I don't I don't know uh I really you know I just I really don't know how I really don't know if if uh Ron Fields the prosecuting attorney if he knew some things but he just you know he might have just not want to go, have gone through it all and just said, "Oh, this guy did it, and just be done with it." Because he was he was taking care of some other. There was a trial that was coming on after him, uh, after this was completed. With the, uh, I don't know. Sometimes, <laughs> uh, I think what, sometimes I think what we're seeing. I think what I, in my experience I've seen is that what happens with the prosecutor is that. Very much like anyone that could look at this looked like that there was likely a partner. If you looked at Squeeb, and Squeeb had a people willing to testify and did testify that he was in Mississippi hunting, I'm pretty sure because of that connection with the gun, they would have liked him to be that second person. Now the other person, oh, yeah. the car thief, the car thief, as you write, really didn't have any other record other than car theft. But the other thing that I see over and over again uh, is that the prosecutor does not want to introduce a possible other person to throw, again, the prosecution or give the witness an opportunity, pardon me, the defense an opportunity to say, well, how about this other person? And to cast the uh, the focus off of their own client in, very, in exactly. sort of a confusing manner because you only need one person to hang a jury. So very much so I think that this what this is, they have a clear prosecutorial uh focus. This is the person, we have the evidence against him. He certainly did do it and we're going to deal with that person. And they can always and they do have the opportunity to charge somebody further if they gain more information. Especially I think that would be the case when they're dealing with making sure that this guy, unlike the very first time when he got 45 years, that this person was going to not exit jail any time, period. The guy the guy who was uh, the prosecuting attorney when, when Simmons got out in eight years, when he was supposed to serve 45, that prosecuting attorney just incidentally was the governor of Arkansas at one time. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was interesting um, that he, at at the advent of parole, tried to intervene and say that this person was at least beyond rehabilitation and, and dangerous yeah. and not to be let out. And they went against yeah. his recommendation. Right, right. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. One person told me, uh, this lady who used to be, who used to work at the courthouse, she, she thought there was a lot of skullduggery going on and, 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 and that why did he get to come? Why did Simmons get to come and stay at his sister's house? And why did this happen? And, and Squeeb was, uh, he had all these fish fries all the time for people, uh, county officials and, and, uh, and maybe, you know, there was all sorts of like, how come, how come he, how come this guy really got to go to his sister's house? And this is one more thing. The sister, every time she was subpoenaed to testify, she didn't show up. She said that she was sick. She said that she had fallen down. And so they just forgot. They just forgot. They just said, well, we just won't, we just won't testify against her. But now had they, had somebody cross-examined her pretty well, they might have found something out. Yeah. What's what's very disturbing, too, is when you take the reader into the, the crime scene, and we didn't get into it, but you talk about what likely uh, Joanna said, what likely was said to, to, to Thomas from uh, Holly Gentry being the Christian that he was. and and But Tate, one of the most... Uh, most disturbing things was that his own handcuffs were used to subdue him, and yes. uh, and all all of these people were shot in the back of the head by the perpetrator putting up the coat of the jacket. And you write in the book that all of them were likely, if not for certainly, begging for their life, asking if they would be killed, and he would assure them. That no, I'm not going to kill you. Now, of course, I wouldn't yeah. kill you. I'm not going to kill you. And it was a cold-blooded killing. So it was, was cold-blooded. <laughs> the the book title, Absolutely. the title I took, "Cold-Blooded," came from one of the Supreme Court when they ruled that they he had his last appeal. The Supreme Court ruled that they had never seen a more cold-blooded killer than this fellow was, and so. That's where I got the uh, where I got the title "Cold Blooded." Not that I'd never heard of cold blood before, but but yeah. the Supreme Court had used it. So, uh, well, this is this this book. Uh, I may know some more later on. You know, I, uh, just like I found out from the sister that uh, they had found his wedding ring and his wallet, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I also wanted to mention too that uh, you are the author and you had alluded to it that you are the author of Closing Time and also Blind Rage which just happened to be about this area Van Buren where yes. you are from and also yes. a particularly murderous time in the history of this area because this happens in a short period of time these sensational three murders 
that you chronicle in your books, Closing Time, Blind Rage, and now Cold-Blooded. A very interesting time um, and yeah. the history of this little area. Uh, the Blind Rage was uh, that was the first one I wrote. Uh, I just want that was just a good story. I knew uh, because I knew everybody involved in that, and and I just remembered when it all happened. I thought, oh man, I'm going to write this book sometime. And so when I wrote that book, uh, Blind Rage, I really wasn't thinking I'm going to write a true crime book. It just ended up by being true crime. Well, that right. book did so well that I thought, well, maybe I maybe I will write another true crime book. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, you know, uh, they kept appearing and appearing and I'm I'm working I'm working on this uh, I've got another one that I'm working on right now that that actually it's takes place over in Fort Smith. <laughs> so Not too far. Uh, not too far, no, no. No, because no. Fort Smith plays uh-huh. prominent in this story as well. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh well, Dan, it's been fun talking to you. Boy, I'm telling Thank you, you, so you much. really are. You're a thorough reader. <laughs> I'm well, everything you brought up. I thought, whoo, he is a thorough reader. That's amazing. How many of these books you have to read to, in order to talk to the authors? I'm impressed. Well, it's it's a pleasure though. The the book was so good, and it was so uh, so disturbing to bring the reader, like I say, right into these the kidnapping, the rape, and the abductions, and these people begging and pleading for their lives, and all the horror that Joanna experienced, thinking about her her husband and having that trepidation and and premonition that something was going to go wrong, and it certainly mm-hmm. it all did. Um, not not, yeah. a, not a happy ending whatsoever. But I want to thank you so much, and Anita Paddock for coming on and talking about a cold blooded. And I, I would I would recommend people go and look at your Amazon page for closing time and for blind rage as well. Thank you so much, yes. Anita. Uh-huh. It's been thank a pleasure. you. Thank you. Bye bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.